Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Nichols, the Nation Magazine's national affairs correspondent, who discusses Hamas's horrifying attack on Israel, which has provoked a new cycle of bloodshed and vengeance, killing hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians. Dr. Sharon Chakijan, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale New Haven Hospital, who examines the ethnic cleansing of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan in a crisis largely ignored by the world community. And Jamie Peck, an organizer who talks about recent developments in the campaign to stop the Cop City Police Training Facility in Atlanta and plans for a nonviolent direct action occupation of the site in mid-November. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The South China Sea has for years been the focus of rising geopolitical tensions between China and the United States and its allies over Taiwan's independence from Beijing. At the same time, the South China Sea is experiencing irreparable environmental damage resulting from decades of overfishing and the decline of critical coral reefs from China's construction of artificial atolls in the disputed Spratly Islands. It's estimated that beneath the South China Sea lies 11 billion barrels of oil and 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas ready to be extracted. Between 2018 and 2021, there were numerous standoffs between China, Vietnam, and other Southeast Asian countries over drilling operations. But beyond the fossil fuel extraction and depletion of fishing stock, there's another threat to the South China Sea's environment. While China currently controls 60% of the world's supply of rare earth metals essential to green energy and communications technology, Beijing recently unveiled a new undersea mining ship capable of drilling for rare earth metals at depths of up to 32,000 feet. With few regulations in place, scientists are worried that unfettered deep-sea mining could cause serious damage to marine life and fragile undersea ecosystems. In 2003, President George W. Bush advocated for the creation of what's called the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. Over the past 20 years, the program, which provides the resources needed to supply HIV-positive patients with antiretroviral treatment, has saved some 25 million lives in more than 50 countries. Although the program has been strongly supported by a bipartisan coalition, PEPFAR is now in danger of becoming a victim of abortion politics. The program is set to expire at the end of September, but House Republicans are refusing to move forward with a bill to reauthorize PEPFAR's $7 billion annual funding for another five years because abortion opponents led by Republican Representative Christopher H. Smith of New Jersey are insisting on adding abortion-related restrictions. 
Those restrictions would bar the program from partnering with any organization that provides abortion services, although no federal funds are spent on abortions. The stalemate is the latest example of how Republicans are using their majority in the House of Representatives to impose their conservative religious views on social policy throughout the federal government. Health workers on the ground say that interrupting U.S. funding will have harmful effects on millions of vulnerable people. In the 50 years since the U.S. Clean Air Act was passed, the nation has witnessed dramatic improvements in air quality by regulating and reducing auto and industrial pollution. However, over the past two decades, air quality improvements have slowed or been reversed across most of the U.S. due to a dramatic increase in climate change-related wildfire smoke. According to a new study in the journal Nature, some western states, including Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, Washington, and Wyoming, saw half of all their air quality improvements lost due to wildfires. In 2000, air quality had been steadily improving, but around 2016, the trend began to decline. Since then, air quality progress has significantly slowed in 30 states. In 11 others, it began to reverse. Another study found that during a 10-year period ending in 2017, wildfire smoke in California increased hospital visits by individuals suffering with asthma and chronic pulmonary disease by 30% in the week after an extreme smoke day. Researchers have also found that wildfire smoke can be up to 10 times more harmful to human health than other pollutants. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In the early morning hours of October 7th, one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, Hamas, the governing authority in the Gaza Strip, launched an unprecedented and brutal attack on Israel by land, air, and sea, massacring Israeli men, women, and children. Hamas militants slaughtered 260 young people attending an outdoor music festival near the Gaza border and kidnapped an estimated 100 to 150 Israelis and brought them back to Gaza to hold as hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded by declaring war on Hamas and ordered airstrikes and missiles targeting the densely populated Gaza Strip, home to more than two million people. As of October 10th, the death toll from the ongoing violence passed 1,800, with more than 1,000 people killed and 2,700 injured in Israel and at least 900 people killed and 4,500 injured in Gaza. U.S. officials report that 14 American citizens have died in the attack. President Biden, who ordered a U.S. aircraft carrier strike group to sail to the eastern Mediterranean, pledged full support for Israel in this crisis. Your reporter spoke with John Nichols, the Nation magazine's national affairs correspondent, who discusses Hamas's horrifying attack on Israel which has provoked a new cycle of bloodshed and vengeance, killing mostly civilians, 
with the danger that the conflict could spread to other nations in the region, including Lebanon and Iran. There is simply no question that what happened on Saturday morning, the slaughter of innocent young people who were at a rave and, and were there to dance, it's incomprehensible. The kidnapping of elderly people and children uh, from, from kibbutzes. What Hamas did was, was horrific. And anybody who has a problem being unsettled by that, you know, I think, I think probably is, is, is kind of lost. But by the same token, what the Israelis are doing in their response, the, the, the bombing of, of densely crowded neighborhoods in, in Gaza City, is also horrific. And you're seeing the death of, of children and, and elderly there as well. And so, again, to just simply casually accept that, I think, is a, is a, a lost and unacceptable response. And so we're put in a situation, those of us who are on the edge of it and who see it from, from afar here in the United States, I think if we're honest, trying to say that we're dealing with something that's incredibly complicated and there aren't, there aren't easy answers here. And people who come to you and try to tell you that there are easy answers, I think either have not been paying attention or have become so hardened by, by the events of the, the last 70 years that they, to some extent, given up on, on the possibility of of finding a peaceful way out of this, but I'm, I'm not in that camp. I, I remain a believer as somebody who spent a, a tremendous amount of time in Israel and in Palestine over many, many years, that there are tremendous numbers of good people in both of these places, and that there are an awfully lot of people, a tremendous number of people who want peace. I think we feel farther from peace now than at any time, maybe, certainly in, in my adult life, but I'm still in that camp of saying that we have to strive for it. And I, I think that the United States and other countries should be you know, looking for a way to stop the killing on all sides and to, to try and get trying to renew a peace process that's been allowed to, to wither and pretty much disappear over the last number of years. Thank you for that, John. President Biden has ordered a carrier group into the region. There's certainly concern with reports, whether they're accurate or not, we don't know, about Iran's involvement in this uh, attack by Hamas on Israel. But there's concern, of course, that what's happened across the border from Gaza and Israel could erupt into a wider war across the Middle East, given the fact that the United States is firmly on one side in this conflict. Is there not a danger of the United States being drawn into a wider war? There's always a danger. And that's something that, that we should be genuinely concerned about. Look, the United States has been drawn into and uh, gone into wars in the Middle East before. And we have seen little good come of it, right? It hasn't been a, a positive result. And so I think one of the reasons why Americans are so resistant to the uh, dispatch of U.S. troops, especially ground troops, to war zones around the world is, is because of the experience of the last not 20 years, you know, not just going back to the Bush administration's war in Iraq, but really more than 30 years going back to the previous Bush administration's war in the Middle East, which you know, obviously began in Kuwait and then moved into Iraq. And that maintained through blockades and other things during the Clinton years. We as a country have had a terrible experience. And frankly, the world has had a terrible experience. Our military interventions have not been to the good. They have not uh, made things better. And so uh, I think the American people realize that. That's why so many people are so ill at ease with the idea of endless war. And I think any time that there's a dispatch of U.S. military to the region, 
there should be a, a discomfort and there should be a lot of questioning. And if we had a functional Congress, which we don't, but if we had a functional Congress, people would be talking about this right now. Um, and, you know, there would be hearings and there would be discussions because it's not that the United States can't have a role in the Middle East. It obviously does economic and, and military, but the role should be that of a, of a major power in the world seeking to build coalitions to um, dial down violence, to move back toward a peace process. And I would like to see more of that. You know, that's that's where I, I would prefer to see the United States aiming at this point. I, I hope and do not believe you'll see an actual military intervention there. I think that wiser heads will prevail, not just in the U.S., but in Europe. But this is a deeply concerning moment. And we are at a point globally where it's appropriate to pause and recognize that we're, we've kind of reached a moment that we feared for decades. There's been a fear that you would get to a point where you have massive deaths, open warfare, and the prospect of uh, the rest of the world getting drawn in. Because I really do think we should all be pausing and thinking very seriously about how we respond to this, hoping the goal is an ending of violence, a dialing down of tensions, and an erring on the side of peace, as hard as that is, and recognizing that to get there is the very expensive and very complicated uh, requirement of diplomacy. And diplomacy is really hard, but it is where, to my mind, the United States should focus a tremendous amount of its energy. That was author and journalist John Nichols, The Nation Magazine's national affairs correspondent. Find more analysis and commentary on the Hamas attack on Israel and the escalating death toll of civilians by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Since late September, over 100,000 ethnic Armenian refugees have been forced to leave their homes in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Eighty percent of the enclave's entire Armenian population fled after the Azerbaijani military launched an offensive backed by Turkey that took control of the territory. After blockading the enclave for nine months, the Azerbaijani military attack killed and wounded hundreds. Those fleeing, some with only the clothes on their backs, are unwilling to live under Azerbaijani rule, fearing they'll face oppression. Armenia condemned the Azerbaijani military operation against Nagorno-Karabakh as ethnic cleansing. Nagorno-Karabakh is recognized internationally as being part of Azerbaijan, but the region has been controlled by ethnic Armenians for 35 years. Since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the nations have waged two wars over the territory. First, during the 1990s, where Azerbaijanis were driven out, and again in 2020. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Sharon Chakijan, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale New Haven Hospital. Here she discusses the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh that Armenians call Artsakh and the current situation for the enclave's residents that have been forcibly exiled in a crisis largely ignored by the world community and news media. In 2020, Azerbaijan attacked the area um, and regained um, some areas that were being occupied as sort of a buffer zone for safety. But they also took areas of Artsakh, and I can't say they regained those areas because those were never their areas, although they were in, within the Soviet borders of Azerbaijan. Uh, there was a horrific 44-day war, um, and it left us with a very small landmass. 
Within that area, there were 120,000 Armenians that were living. Uh, Last year, actually, I was in Armenia, and there was an attack, a sort of four-day war on different areas in Armenia proper, um, and also attacks on Artsakh. Um, And this year, uh, with all the pressure that was being mounted by the international community, which was not enough pressure to stop what happened, Azerbaijan decided to attack, um, and the world powers have said that they were being reassured by Azerbaijan that they were not going to attack, but all of the signs were there, um, namely munitions flowing from Israel uh, into um, into Azerbaijan, which we saw before the 2020 war. Um, and on September 19th, they really brutally attacked civilian populations. Uh, there are reports, although there are no international observers, uh, nor will they let uh, UN uh, missions into the areas uh, where this happened, but there are reports that there were massacres of approximately four villages, um, beheadings, including the beheading of the mayor of uh, Martakert, death of children, actually, beheadings of children, uh, and videos being posted of Azeris firing directly into civilian settlements. And so when the following day, Lachin Corridor was opened up, you can imagine that uh, there was a mass exodus. Uh, Azeris are trying to paint this as a voluntary fleeing. They don't even use the word fleeing, but voluntary exodus. Uh, But every Armenian and every Armenian of Artsakh knows that you don't leave voluntarily with just the clothes on your back. These were people that were living, you know, in fear for their lives, that had been starved for close to one year, uh, who were living in bunkers uh, whenever bombs were falling on them. Um, And when the opportunity presented itself and the border opened, they left in a panic, including actually even the health minister um, of Artsakh, who I've consulted with. Uh, He left just as an ordinary citizen with nothing more than the clothes on his back. Uh, So this was certainly not a voluntary exodus. We only have a few minutes left, uh, Dr. Chikijan, but I did want to ask you this. Why has there been so little attention by the world community and especially our corporate media outlets here in the United States to this tragic case of ethnic cleansing. The second question would be, what what can the United States or any of the nations of the world do at this point to help those refugees who have been forced to flee Nagorno-Karabakh? So I'll say one word about the refugees. They're very lucky that they were just adjacent to Armenia, uh, a country that speaks the same language they speak. Um, And so within uh, those parameters, they were able to freely move around Armenia as opposed to other refugees who are kept um, in refugee camps and who really have no legal status. Um, So we're really quite fortunate uh, that we're able to house people. Of course, it's a challenge in a country of, uh, you know, close to three million people to suddenly find housing, schools, jobs for, you know, 120,000 people. But there's almost nobody left in Artsakh right now. An emergency group stayed behind to look for the elderly and people who couldn't evacuate. Um, So I think, you know, the most important thing, you know, why hasn't this received a lot of attention? Azerbaijan has spent billions actually ensuring, uh, as has Turkey, that uh, that there will be silence. They've bought silence on the part of the journalists. In fact, there was a media junket to an area called Shushi, Uh, that was captured in the 2020 war, uh, and people had their flights paid for. um, And that buys, you know, silence on the part of the media, unfortunately. So the most important thing is really to get the word out. If I could dream, and it's really a dream at this point, our ultimate goal would be remedial secession. um, And that means, you know, if you're a threatened people uh, in an area, that area could actually secede from the country with, you know, within which borders it, it survives and lives. 
Um, but that really, in this case, would require UN armed peacekeepers, not just peacekeepers, but armed peacekeepers, and a lot of them to keep the peace. Um, and it would also, you know, really require a world power recognizing the Republic of Artsakh. And so, so far, nobody's come forward to do that, unfortunately. That was Dr. Sharon Chakijan, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale New Haven Hospital. Learn more about the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Recent developments around the campaign to stop Cop City, the $90 million militarized police training facility planned for the city of Atlanta that would destroy 85 acres of forest in neighboring DeKalb County, has strengthened the determination of opponents who are now planning a major protest action in Atlanta in mid-November. On October 6th, a special prosecutor announced that none of the six police officers who shot and killed a forest defender known as Tortuguita would face charges. The official police report said Tortuguita shot first, but an autopsy showed that the activist had no gunpowder residue on their hands. Meanwhile, the petition signed by 116,000 Atlanta residents to put the Cop City project on the November ballot stalled after city officials refused to count the petition signatures then said they'll use signature matching to verify them, a tactic frequently used to disqualify signers. It now appears that the referendum question may be placed on the primary ballot next March. So opponents are turning to another tactic, a mass nonviolent direct action occupation of the forest. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Jamie Peck, one of several organizers who've been crisscrossing the country over the past month, recruiting volunteers to participate in the action that will take place in Atlanta from November 10th to the 13th. The idea for a mass direct action on the construction site came out of the last week of action when we saw that um, the encampment as a strategy was not likely to remain the kind of durable occupation like we saw at Standing Rock. We did not have the numbers to safely occupy the forest at that point in time. We're in an interesting dilemma where lots of people know about Cop City, lots of people oppose Cop City, but the number of people who feel comfortable showing up and doing embodied action, doing direct action to stop this thing has dwindled for many different reasons. It's self-evident how terrifying the repression has been, even though I think these charges are unlikely to stick and even mainstream legal scholars are calling them ridiculous. It's still scary that people are being charged under the RICO laws and people are being charged with domestic terrorism. Also, I think a lot of energy got poured into the referendum campaign thinking that that was a slam dunk and we were going to win that way. But um, I think more and more people are seeing that you can't trust the city to be fair with you um, when you work within the system, although I still hope the vote happens and I still hope the vote stops Cop City. This was really a strategy to grow the movement through the repression, as we say, um, and to get large numbers of people onto the construction site in numbers that we haven't actually seen before in this movement. I just wanted to go back to the referendum. 
the fact that 116,000 people signed the petition to get it on the ballot, it doesn't seem to me that that's necessarily proof that 116,000 people would vote against Cop City. I mean, some people may just thought it was a good idea and they wanted to weigh in and they were in favor of it, right? So you, you can't really assume that everybody who signed it is against it. Uh, sure. But I, I think the canvassing has been very heavily focused on stopping Cop City. I mean, I canvassed for a day and all of these conversations were with people who either didn't know about it. And when they learned about it, they were like, that's awful. I'm going to sign this petition so we can vote against it. Or people who knew about it and were excited to sign the petition. There were also some people who were like too busy to talk because they were shopping for groceries. But not a single person that I talked to on that day was like, no, I'm in favor of Cop City. Can you say any more? I know there's a few days, uh, the 10th, November 10th through the 13th. What can you say about what's planned for those days so far? In addition to the action itself, which is going to be on the 13th, there's going to be two full days of nonviolent direct action trainings for everyone who's coming to Atlanta. And we chose Veterans Day weekend in part because it's a three-day weekend, so people have an extra day to travel because it's really important that they attend those trainings. They're going to be trained in de-escalation tactics. They're going to be trained in you know how to stand together as a group, decision-making on the fly, everything related to that because we really want people to feel prepared for what we're going to do on Monday. There's also going to be some spokes councils where all the affinity groups who are traveling to Atlanta will have a chance to have some input on what the plan is and the exact details of the plan are going to be worked out the day of because we're going to be doing recon up until that day. Conditions on the ground are always changing and we need to determine where we can enter the construction site from and talk to everybody involved. There's also going to be uh, concerts and parties. I think it's really important for us to have fun at the same time that we're doing something very serious and intense and meaningful and hopefully impactful. Yeah, you know, the old Emma Goldman quote, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Are there also going to be roles for people who aren't risking arrest by going actually into the forest? Yeah, totally. So um, in addition to the folks doing the direct action on the construction site, there are going to be a ton of support roles needed. We need lots and lots of people to do jail support because if people get arrested, we need to be working around the clock to get them out as fast as possible. There's going to be some child care organized. There's going to be some communal meals that we need help with cooking and probably a bunch of other things that I can't think of right now because I'm very tired. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of support roles available for sure. I've been organizing a minute and these things, they wax and wane. I was feeling a little burned out. But this is one thing that's really giving me hope right now. And I have not seen anything unite and excite the American left and even people who don't consider themselves leftists uh, since really since the Bernie Sanders campaign. So I feel like this is a really hopeful moment and it could very well be a historic weekend. That was Jamie Peck, an organizer with Block Cop City. Learn more about the Stop Cop City direct action protest November 10th through the 13th by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, KOTX in Seattle, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Nikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines,